0: Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Surgery Watch podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Edvardas Sackauskas, CEO and co-founder of Sentante. Sentante are an endovascular robotics company who are creating a transformational platform for the endovascular market. In this episode, we spoke about Edvardus' journey, lessons for future founders, and what the future of the cath lab and robotics market actually look like. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Edwardos, and welcome to the SurgeryBoss podcast. Hi, Henry, thanks for having me here. Let's kick off, and can you start off by telling us who you are and what it is that you do?
1: So my name is Edvardas Atkowskos. I'm CEO and the co-founder of the company called Innovativi Medicina. And we are out of Lithuania, and we develop endovascular robot system, Sentantin.
0: Okay. So, talk me through your career and how it led you to becoming the CEO of Sentante.
1: So, my background is uh, business and management, uh, but uh, actually, from very beginning, uh, back in two thousand and four, I started in uh, medical devices field. So, I started in orthopedics, spent some time uh, in sales and exports, B two B of uh, medical devices. Uh, then I left medical field for uh, a little while. And uh, I was fascinating about investment side and me and my colleagues had some work done uh, in uh, investment. Uh, basically, we had a small boutique uh, investment firm, which uh, had a goal to invest in innovative technologies. And one of the startup companies that we invested in was a medical technology company, which uh, then later on I joined and ended up uh, being uh, managing director of that company. And that was a neurodiagnostic, uh, ultrasound-based neurodiagnostic uh, company. It was quite a long long journey from basically lab-based concept into a funded company with offices in the US and uh, Europe uh, with uh, two technologies and the commercialization Uh, interesting projects with NASA, etc. So, that that was quite an interesting experience. And afterwards, uh, me and uh, some of my colleagues, we established a company that uh, was for design and development uh, of medical devices as a service. So, basically, we were a service provider and uh, developed quite a bunch of uh, very diverse uh, medical technologies uh, to different clients. And one of them was uh, Thomas Boltrunas, who is uh, basically a founder, co-founder of this company. He's a vascular surgeon, and he came up with this idea of endovascular robot that would actually be usable and useful in clinical practice. So when he came to us with his ideas at first I must admit they looked really ambitious because the the final vision of the device which we were building then was you know at first glance you cannot do that you cannot make it but uh, Here we are, five years later, we have a fully working system, uh, fourth generation device already uh, existing and uh, everyone loves it.
0: Amazing. So what was it that seemed so ambitious about this when you were approached about the idea and about the platform?
1: Yeah, so uh, Thomas, uh, he's endovascular surgeon and he works with guide wires and catheters and other catheter-based devices. Uh, which he inserts into patients into their vascular system and navigates them using X-ray imaging. And uh, he is exposed to X-ray every day. And uh, eventually physicians develop cancer due to X-ray exposure. They get orthopedic issues because they have to wear heavy lead aprons and uh, all sorts of other problems. So the idea that the robot could help here is not new. And there are robots out there trying to solve this issue. But the fun part actually started when we started to talk with Thomas about how the system should work. And uh, he said basically, I want to sit outside the cath lab in front of my x-ray monitor and manipulate the guide wire from there. And basically, I want to have this guide wire, actual guide wire in my hands. And uh, if I push or pull or rotate, the robot should sense somehow the movement and translate exactly the same motion into the patient who is in the CAT lab and who has uh, identical guide wire inserted. Uh, but if there's resistance in the patient and if guide wire resist to torque or push or, or, or pull motion, uh, well, he needs to have real time haptic force feedback because if not, uh, if, if, if he pushes too hard, he can injure patient because this tactile uh, information is very important during the procedure. And we went. Okay, this this already sounds complicated, but you know it sounds like we need to develop some sort of guide wire with sensors. He said, No, no. You know there are hundreds of guide wires, hundreds of different guide wires out there used in different procedures, and we need to work with any of them. Um, any off-the-shelf guide wire. Some of them are thin and floppy. Some of them are very stiff and uh, and uh, difficult to maneuver. Uh, so. Uh, we need to be able to manipulate any of those and in actually very uh, dynamic way. So we need to have haptic force feedback in a very dynamic system. So okay, uh, this is already even more complicated and then, but you know, there are also catheters used and usually not one but two, uh, one inside the other, and they also come in different thicknesses, different properties. And um, we need basically to have at least three endovascular devices, one inside the other in telescopic manner. And we w- we need to work with them uh, in similar fashion as with guide wires. So basically have haptic force feedback and feel their resistance. And also, we need to have a possibility to change any of those during the procedure because you start with uh, you know diagnostic actor and then you need a balloon or stent to insert and uh, so all this basically describes very sophisticated system and at first glance is, is it, it looks wow but you know in order to solve a problem you need to do an entire procedure using robot because otherwise it does not make sense it's just an expensive toy and uh, at first it sounded super ambitious, but we succeeded. We developed a system which can manipulate uh, three out-of-the-shelf out endovascular devices uh, at a time. Uh, they are remotely controlled from uh, different room and they have haptic force feedback through the interface of very similar or actually identical uh, devices. And in addition to that, Santana has accuracy and precision uh, which helps to do procedure way better, better accuracy and precision than human being can do uh, in manual procedure and provides a number of different uh, benefits uh, for physician. So as initially uh, the idea was we do not change devices used during the procedure, we do not change clinical workflow, Uh, we just take physician out of operating room. But while doing that we don't even change how physician operates and uh, how they sense the devices. And we provide them with accuracy, precision, dexterity, possibility to freeze those instruments, to use motion scaling features and and, uh, other things to help them to achieve high quality of the procedure.
0: Okay, sounds brilliant. So from coming with an idea from a vascular surgeon who clearly had an idea about what robotics should be in the endovascular space, Talk to me through the journey that Sentante has been on up until this point now.
1: Yeah, so it was quite a long journey and we um, initially we had uh, developed a proof of concept basically checking if that haptic force feedback system that we had in mind could actually work. And in such a dynamic system and sensitive system uh then we had to work towards the actual procedure basically uh improving the uh, use of different endovascular devices and the instruments so eventually we could perform entire procedure robotically and then the last generation is basically a optimization of all the things that we learned during our journey and making it a product like uh, technology that could actually work in the cat lab and each of that generation was actually tested uh, both with uh, vascular uh, models here in our lab, but also in uh, animal models. Uh, we did preclinical tests with each generation devices. We invited physicians to work with them, uh, collected their feedback, uh, made some changes in requirements, and the usability and intuitive use of the system was a part of the entire journey actually.
0: Okay, and what are some of the biggest challenges that have come along that journey? So it's
1: uh, always a lot of different things but uh, probably one one of things that we really learned that is uh, you make assumptions when you're developing a kind of complicated system and you say okay th- this is obvious let's focus on that if you can do not or test it so even if that sounds very obvious test it ask people uh, ask uh, end users ask physicians uh, see if you can test your hypothesis somehow and get external data uh, otherwise there is huge risk of you know developing something which is not needed or not essential or makes uh, the system too complicated. And uh, that part is probably very important. And we talked to a number of different uh, people, leading KOLs in in the world, we demonstrated the system already to more than 50 physicians. Uh, They tested it, we asked them questions, we showed the system to industry leaders, industry experts from other robotic fields as well, uh, hearing their feedback and um, the communication and hearing what the market has to say is probably one of the key things uh, in in my mind when developing such system.
0: Okay, and have you got any examples of where you've had to make a big pivot based upon feedback, where you've started developing something and think you're going down the right route and then the feedback has come back and um, you've had to completely change the book on it?
1: Um, That's a great question. We never uh, lost our North Star, so we uh, constantly work towards the same direction, same requirements, which we set in the very beginning. We maybe alter them. Uh, So we did some uh, changes that initially we we were not not planning to do, but to basically have a better usability or uh, from engineering standpoint, you can do a lot. You can do, you know, such system that you can tweak according to your needs. You can kind of have an equalizer system, which would adopt to a particular physician's uh, habits, for example. But this is a dangerous road to go because then you risk to make a super complicated system that you need to adjust so many settings and kind of to customize it, maybe someone would like it, but probably not everyone. Mm. And especially given that you would bring such a sophisticated system to a clinical work, it has to be as simple as possible, as easy to use as possible, as simple to use as possible, as safe as possible. Have, to let, well, no room for error basically, and that is uh, the feedback we tried to collect and that went into the requirements of the system. So uh, physically, if you would see the systems, they are vastly different, one from each other, but uh, the idea behind it is still the same.
0: Okay, so what, You've talked a lot about the technology behind the system, so what are the problems that the platform is trying to solve with the way it's currently done and also other um, vascular robotic systems?
1: So the question here is um, basically, why do we need robots in endovascular interventions at all? And uh, the answer is actually very simple. Uh, Those are the same reasons as uh, in any other field, robots are used and not only in medicine, but in general. So we need robots when we need uh, better accuracy or precision, so basically better than a human being can do. And uh, in the industry, this example could be you know C N C milling equipment and similar, or when we need some repeatability and some things to make some things automatic, uh, basically increase efficiency of routine procedures. Uh, for example, like manufacturing robots. Uh, or when we need to remove operator out of uh, hazardous or dangerous environments. And those can be, you know, used in landfills or in defense industry, Uh, or when we need to work from distant location and we cannot physically be there. And uh, many robots out there, they have just one of those uh, things and it's sufficient reason for them to exist. When we talk about endovascular, we need to check all the boxes and we actually developed some that we check all the boxes. We provide some millimeter precision and accuracy needed for procedure uh, and, and other features for uh, basically accurate manipulation and placement of the devices. Uh, we also collect this haptic force feedback uh, and when paired with imaging data this creates a really nice data set for us to use AI and machine learning algorithms in the future to uh, increase autonomy of the device to do some routine things uh, automatically and to teach robots to help physician doing some routine things automatically. Obviously, we remove medical personnel from operating room. Uh, so no one has to be in OR when x-ray is running. And that means no more cancer risk, no heavy lead aprons, no more back pain, uh, no visual issues. And this change of environment for physicians uh, from sterile OR uh, into a desktop and basically office based environment is actually a huge change because uh, in that setup, a uh, physician does not need to be sterile anymore. In OR, physician wears uh, sterile gloves and has difficulty even to adjust glasses if needed. In desktop, they have free hands to use. Uh, different things you know they can they have still have the same endovascular devices in their hands but they are free to uh, you know pause the procedure they can use their hands to zoom images use any third party apps do some procedure planning and and different things and that other room where physicians work from may as well be you know in different hospital and here we create possibility to do tele-interventions uh, which would be really important in emergent cases, uh, like stroke, when you have only a couple hours to help that patient, and if you could do a remote intervention, so instead of transporting that patient from rural hospital to central hospital, you can immediately perform uh, the thrombectomy and, uh, you know, save that patient, basically prevent disability. And so, Sentante has all those unique features and it's very different from any other robots currently existing in the market. Those who are already in the market are mostly developed for coronary interventions and they have limited uh, compatibility with uh, endovascular devices. They can work with uh, uh, specific guide wires, 0014 guide wires and the rapid exchange uh, devices uh, optimized for coronaries. And uh, this is uh, mostly elective cases, so m- not so much emergent cases. Uh, they have joystick and PC or PC interface, basically uh, having uh, interface like gaming interface and they do not have haptic force feedback, so physicians cannot control the force that is used to, to manipulate those devices. And the most important thing is that they can do only part of the procedure robotically. So. Uh, this creates a, a very difficult or not difficult, complicated workflow. A physician has to start procedure manually, insert those endovascular devices into the patient, navigate them to a certain position, then in the middle of procedure connect the robot, uh, then uh, go to shielded cockpit, use joystick to manipulate those devices into a desired location, and then they have to come back disconnect the robot in the middle of procedure and complete the procedure in a manual way. So yes this saves some x-ray exposure for doctor but uh, makes some other things uh, more complicated. And uh, if we are talking about tele-interventions we believe that a must-have here is to be able to perform entire procedure robotically. And also uh, there is a large group of uh, other technologies and the developments, uh, which we call uh, steerable catheters, so they they aim to develop um, a catheter that can bend its uh, tip, its tip, so to basically facilitate navigation uh, inside uh, the patient. And those are sometimes really great technologies, but they also uh, solve, you know, one part of problems. And uh, in in that sense, we believe that. Uh, using such technology together with Sympte is also possible, and maybe in the future it will be done.
0: That sounds amazing. Is there any architectural changes that need to be made to install your system, or is it a system that can just go into the uh, the existing architectures? Uh,
1: The the aim was, uh, and uh, I think we succeeded, to have a system that can be installed in any CAT lab. So it is a rather long system, but it, it uh, basically uh, goes alongside the operating table, which is also a long uh, device. So from that sense, uh, we don't take too much of uh, space inside the operating room. Yes, you need to find a, a place in your control room for a cockpit if you want to work remotely. So. Uh, not all the hospitals have uh, huge uh, control rooms, but we have seen many different setups and this is uh, the problem everyone likes to have because it's uh, way better to find a place for your remote workplace than you know to go every day work in those LEDs and uh, be x-rayed every day. So no, we don't need to install any, uh, you know, any construction work or we don't need uh, anything else. Any CAT lab can accommodate some type of system. You can attach to any imaging system. You can um, just basically need to find some more room for additional equipment. It's not always easy, but uh, it's absolutely doable.
0: Brilliant. And so you've spoken to a lot of surgeons and you've had nearly 50, Different ones try it out. So, what's their reaction when they first yeah. get hands-on with the system? Oh,
1: they love it. So, that's that's probably a biggest reward for us and for engineers when you know you demonstrate, you, you show how the system works, you kind of tell about it, you demonstrate it for you know 10 minutes how they are supposed to work, and they are so keen to go and test it and try it. And it's um, a bit like. Uh, I like to say it's a bit like talking about wine. Uh, I can tell you, you know, a half an hour long story, how good that wine is. But until you actually taste it, you you would never know. Uh, The same is with Sintante. We present it, we show it and everyone's like, okay, okay. When can I try it? And as soon as they start working with it, that's, you know, just a bunch of compliments coming to our engineering and development team Uh, so uh, the haptic force feedback receives a lot of compliments everyone can actually feel the resistance of the devices it's super intuitive to use Uh, so basically physicians don't need to train uh, at all and it's um, uh, one thing which is actually very important because uh, most of the time the physicians who are very good at what they do. They are experienced and sometimes famous physicians. Uh, usually they are also uh, at certain age. So it is um, not their interest to become uh, gamers, for example, and to get that joystick in their hands and try to manipulate a robotic system using, you know, gamepad pad or, or a joystick or something like this. And what we give to them is the interface that they are familiar for many years, they know exactly what to expect, they know exactly what, it should, uh, what feedback they should receive, what instrument they should use, they have their routines, and we don't change any of that. And that's a great thing for them, they love it, and uh, so on the funny side is when they test the system, a very common question is, okay, so where's my beer holder? But uh, because, you know, you have such a comfortable uh, setup there, uh, but on the uh, serious side, uh, very often we receive a question, how can I help to get this to clinical practice? I, I'd love to have such a system, how can I help? So this is a huge compliment for us, then we know that we do certain things right.
0: Okay. And how can they help get this into the clinics? So when they're asking that question, how do you respond? So the obvious things, uh, first first
1: of all, we are very grateful for their feedback, but then uh, the development phases of uh, medical devices, and in particular in this case, is you go through preclinical testing, you, you go to clinical testing, you get regulatory clearance, only then you can get to uh, the actual clinical work. So that's, uh, we do quite a lot of preclinical work. Uh, clinical trials are still ahead of, of us. And we plan for it. And we have uh, brilliant clinical centers, brilliant clinicians willing to be part of it. And that's, that's uh, the help we can uh, have from them. Uh, they are interested to test it. We are interested to install the system in, in, in different settings and uh from physician side uh there's probably they are end users of the system so what we can get from their side is basically a very open and honest uh opinion about the system and uh, actual testing in clinical setting okay
0: so is there anyone who's come along and been like no i don't like this platform and therefore Have you had to change anything based upon that feedback? Or have you had to have internal discussions about that? Is there anything that's been brought up that people haven't liked about this?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, uh, Absolutely, there were some uh, feedbacks that suggested some improvements uh, do that or that or that. Another thing which is actually very, um, how shall I put it? difficult in our situation because we try to build a system for endovascular interventions and what does mean endovascular so you can do uh, peripheral interventions you can do coronary interventions you can do neuro interventions and each of those would have very different requirements and very different devices used uh, very different workflows and very different people are working with such uh, well in those indications and uh, well technically the device can be used in any of those uh, interventions if over the wire uh, device systems are used if you use over the wire devices Uh, our first clinical indication is peripheral vascular because we um, that's basically a shortest time to hospital for us. It's a shortest time to market for us. And we want to demonstrate a system in a real clinical setting. But we also work with clinicians and demonstrate the system for clinicians that uh, work um, for with uh, neuroindications, for example, with the stroke management or uh, aneurysm closing, closing. And they have rather different requirements and we them in our main market basically is neuro one way or another we want to do remote stroke treatment uh, sooner than later uh, so we demonstrate the system to neuro people as well and uh, yes there were some very experienced uh, people who initially said you know I would probably need more sensitivity or uh, you know I would need uh, you know I need extreme accuracy while placing that device. And uh, we explain them that this will be done when we'll have uh, indication for neuro because that's, uh, technologically, that's absolutely possible. Uh, we just need to go that development pathway. And the funny thing is that uh, initial skepticism, and I think uh, many of them, many of clinicians are usually uh, Rather skeptical initially on the technologies because they see so many of them yeah. uh, every day, uh, so many of new technologies. But the funny thing is that after some time passes, uh, like if you're in the conference, you demonstrate the system. You say, mm, "Okay, that's interesting, but I'm not sure how that I'm not sure how that would work." And then the next day they come back and say, "You know, I thought about it. It's great. If you can do that and that, that would absolutely work." Yeah. And then we have a great discussion of uh, how this should be done uh, in order to work in their specific field uh, for their specific indication.
0: Okay. So we've talked very much about the technology and what it means for surgeons and clinicians and hospital, but for the patients, what can this actually mean for those guys? And I saw a really interesting piece of marketing um, around how this might transform stroke treatment as one example. but. If you could tell me a few of the indications and how this might transform patients' lives, that'd be fantastic.
1: Yeah, uh, neurotrombectomy for stroke uh, is the most effective treatment uh, if there is a large vessel occlusion. And if done in time, uh, this treatment may have good functional outcome. But the problem here is that it needs to be in time because when it comes to stroke, every minute counts, and two million brain cells die every minute and if blood flow is restored during critical 2-3 hours after onset the patient may be fully functional if not if thrombectomy is not performed at all there's more than 90% of chance that the patient will stay ser- severely disabled and uh, if today if stroke would happen in remote area the patient must be brought to nearest hospital from there to a reference center and here we we'll lose hours just for interfacility transportation so remote stroke treatment could be really a game changer. If we could save those golden hours, then you know patients would uh, have dramatically improved access to care, to timely care, and therefore dramatically improved outcomes. So teleintervention has a huge promise uh, for everyone. But that's our next step, our second step. Uh, in a first step, we will have some planned for intra-hospital procedures, basically operating from uh, the next room. And in this setup, we have plenty of value for everyone, as discussed, but also for patient, because it's, it's important to understand that um, if a hospital provides good conditions for physician, and physician has necessary skills and tools to perform the procedure well, uh, in the best possible way, then the patient receives the best possible treatment and it's a closed loop if if uh, you don't give a physician uh, good technology to work with uh, then uh, or or physician has no good skills then uh, the patients would not be treated in the best possible way so patients are not treated by the devices they are treated by uh, doctors and uh, you know not all doctors have top skills and the complication rate between top performing doctors and those less experienced doctors may differ three, four times. And uh, on the other hand, even the best doctors, they have bad days, they get tired. They don't do one procedure per day. They do many and sometimes they are overloaded. And the burnout is a huge problem. And uh, technology can help here and uh, because Sentante would in this case would act as a great equalizer uh, reducing variability between the procedures and also it acts as a great uh, training uh, technology because you could use it as a perfect simulator within the same same setup as you would do a procedure and you could, you know, less experienced physicians could uh, lift their skills and do the procedure by better way and uh, more experienced physicians could do more complex procedures. Uh, and the technology provides you know extreme accuracy and precision of manipulation of devices that's always good for patients. Uh, if you can do that in the most efficient way you have this so-called economy of motion so you don't juggle around inside the vessel too much and uh, that also reduces risk of of vessel damage. So. Um, in all, if I could choose you know, between manual procedure performed by a skilled doctor and a robotic procedure performed by a doctor, then I definitely would choose uh, robotics because it, it, it brings a lot of benefit to the procedure.
0: Okay, very cool. So thanks for sharing all of that. I think we got a real good picture there of, of what this platform can really do and how it can transfer the endovascular market. Um, so I wanted to bring the conversation on because you're in a bit of a unique location for a surgical robotics company to come out of. So Lithuania isn't exactly known for its surgical robotics um, like prowess. So could you let me know how that affects things internally? Is it a big advantage to be based in a, a country like Lithuania or is there certain challenges and drawbacks that it has?
1: Uh, it's a bit of everything as, as usually is the case. So, uh, Lithuania is a small country, so you obviously cannot do everything here. Uh, We are three million people uh, and you take uh, any, probably bigger city, and it's a fraction of that, uh, our entire nation. So, uh, basically, this is, uh, on one hand, uh, a challenge, because you need to look for certain things somewhere else. Uh, on the other hand, probably you would do that anyway. So if you are developing a technology this which is not for some local market, but which targets the the global problem, which uh, kind of targets the global market, then you need to work uh, with uh, physicians, advisors, attorneys, uh, you name it, all over the world, and it doesn't really matter the location uh, where you connect from. Uh, except maybe the time difference, but that's totally manageable. Uh, from uh, advantages point of view, I would say we have an, uh, a great technical skills uh, in uh, Eastern Europe in general. Uh, there is our engineers are brilliant. This is brilliant. I had a chance to work with the uh, engineers from different countries, from uh, different uh, projects. And uh, I'm so proud of our team, they are creating amazing things. Uh, So technical knowledge and technical talent is absolutely here. You can find them. Uh, The commercial uh, knowledge, commercial experience is uh, probably better in uh, the US, uh, Western Europe, and you would look for such people maybe there. So it's, um, it's pros and cons, but on the other hand we can be extremely capital efficient here. Uh, we not uh, we are mm, the country which pricing for good engineers pricing for good uh, mm, specialists in, in, in different uh, fields is not that high as for example the US or, or Switzerland or somewhere else uh, the, the, the countries, Known for med tech innovation.
0: Okay, cool. And if you were to start this whole journey again from the start, is there anything that you would do differently or change along the way?
1: Absolutely, we learn uh, as we go, uh, and uh, that th- this process involves a lot of learning, and everyone has to be sort of. Universal soldier. And uh, w- when working in a startup, and I uh, sometimes I joke that in a startup you have to be a technician, a uh, porter, a cleaner, and a CEO all at once. So it's uh, when you when you have a small team, you have to do a, a very different things. Uh, but yeah, from uh, many different aspects. Uh, a lot of things could be done uh, more optimally. We always, when it's startup, you always are uh, under time pressure. Uh, You always depend on external capital markets. You always need to work with people uh, outside your organization. And uh, this is not what you can plan very easily. So uh, there are some lessons learned absolutely that that, uh, I would use uh, in, in any uh, next endeavor.
0: Yeah, so is there anything specific that you would share that would help anyone who's maybe a first-time founder, for example? Like, what's some of the biggest lessons is um, lessons that you would share with, with those guys?
1: Uh-huh. So maybe two things. So one I already mentioned, if you can test any of your hypotheses in the market, do it. It's not always easy, it's not always possible, but if you can, You know, hear what people have to say. Because many of the times uh, when the team is boiling their own soup, (laughs) basically in the same pot, it's very difficult to see how uh, others would react or how others would, uh, what what feedback you would get from from outside of that pot. And that's very important. And on the other hand, uh, the other challenge that that we face, or I faced many of the times, is that when developing such a complicated, or not really complicated, sophisticated system as Semtanthe, it is a a blessing and a curse. A blessing is that it can do so many things and can solve so many problems uh, on the way. But then uh, when describing that, you don't always have an hour, not even half an hour. You have, you know, five minutes to talk to someone, to to a physician or investor, and it is you must be able to tell all the essence in a short period of time. And uh, this is uh, we actually were accepted to um, Metech Innovator Accelerator Program, uh, which is uh, the big program, the biggest in the world medtech uh, accelerator program, and they press on that uh, specific issue a lot. So we have to make a one minute video, one minute pitch, uh, three minute pitch, basically do things in a very concise and clear matter. And for some devices, it's easier. It is not easy for a sophisticated robotic system, I, I have to say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. So what's that accelerator allowed you to do? So you say it's the biggest one globally. That's that's really interesting. So tell me more about that.
1: So that's a really great uh, program. Uh, it is uh, um, led by Paul Grant. Uh, they created an amazing system. Uh, it's very competitive, actually. Uh, each year uh, they accept um, 60-ish uh, companies, uh, and, and they select them out of maybe 1200 or something like that. So it's uh, like around 5% of success rate. But when you get there, uh, you get a lot of uh, help, basically being able to talk to uh, your peers, other companies that are selected, also get a uh, possibility or get introduced to a lot of service providers that are uh, best in the market, uh, it costs you nothing. Uh, you, the, the, the program is financed by strategic partners and other partners of that uh, program. And one of the criterias of being selected there is that some strategics would need to say, uh, yes, that's interesting and let's invite them. So uh, it's uh, an interesting twist in, 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 in that regard, but on the other hand, this is uh, how it works in the industry because uh, in the end uh, you, you need to have uh, not only physician's interest uh, on the technology but it, it has to reach the market and eventually if you have uh, investors it has to reach uh, some sort of exit and uh, planning ahead and looking at the next and next and next step what what awaits you in, in the future is very important because many of the times you have to uh, align your current actions to what is gonna happen uh, next step and next step and maybe, you know, four steps fro- from now. And it, it is very important. So that's a great program. I, I encourage everyone uh, take a look at that and uh, apply. It's easy to apply. They have a selection process. You are invited to pitch uh, to a A lot of people, a lot of knowledgeable people, everyone is very helpful. And then during the program, if you are selected, you have a number of uh, uh, introductions, networking events, meeting investors, meeting service provider, meeting uh, different uh, field experts. Uh, I have uh, weekly uh, calls, weekly, say webinars, not really webinars, but that's live. Uh, you can ask questions, you can discuss with industry people and basically uh, not only ask questions that are relevant to you but also hear what other people are uh, working on where they face challenges and maybe uh, learn from uh, mistakes done by others. That's a hard thing to do. Everyone likes to learn from their own mistakes but uh, still there is possibility.
0: Okay, amazing. Sounds like a brilliant program for all of those involved. Um, So you said that you have started to discuss timelines and where the business is going from here. So what timelines are you working towards at the moment? So um,
1: our next year uh, will be a very interesting year for the company. We'll have uh, our first in-human clinical uh, trial. Uh, We'll have our regulatory submissions and we basically will have our uh, products ready. Uh, Until now, we demonstrated a bunch of prototypes to demonstrate what the system can do. But we are moving fast uh, to the point when we'll have a product which will be validated in uh, actual clinical setting and we'll have a possibility to uh, have an actual system in the hospital. So, uh, not just the hospital, we've been there many times, but actually in real clinical use. So that's a huge milestone for us, and we're very much looking forward to it.
0: Okay, very cool. And when do you expect to get onto the market where this will be helping patients commercially?
1: So, we'll do our uh, first human clinical trial, basically the plan is to do that Q2 uh, next year. Uh, We already started to work with uh, regulatory institutions, both in the United States and EU and uh, we plan to submit right afterwards Uh, we know mdr it's not easy now uh, especially with timelines of notified bodies but we started to work early Uh, we know that issue and we plan ahead and we hope that um, end of next year uh, we may be in a situation when uh, we'll have a approval.
0: phenomenal sounds like a lot of fun so what are the technologies it is and so what are the future technologies that you're watching or what should we be watching in the uh, the endovascular space what what do you think is most exciting and what are these technologies uh, maybe outside of what we've already talked about that, that you think are particularly interesting
1: so uh, for endovascular there are m- many different systems under development uh, if you would take uh, I'm not mentioning uh, stands, balloons, all the actual devices that I planted into the patient. There are a bunch of them uh, under development, and I'm certainly not an expert uh, to talk about those. Neither am I uh, uh, to talk about uh, the robotic systems, but uh, we keep an eye on what what is happening uh, in the industry, who is developing what. And uh, I see a couple main categories there. Uh, so one is as we call uh, steerable catheters, so those that can bend um, technology that allow to bend the tip of uh, a particular uh, device, a particular instrument uh, be it catheter or guide wire, and to help navigation of uh, through the vascular system. Uh, many of the times they are called uh, robotic. Uh, it's a broad, uh, way to use the term, but uh, those are exciting technologies. We, we uh, look at them and even potentially uh, in the future, there might be a nice collaboration with a system like this and Santante because we uh, independently, if you bend that tip or not, you would still need uh, linear rotational movements and, and, and other movements basically manipulate those devices. And uh, another part is uh, the, the systems with uh, approaches either uh, similar to existing systems or basically for manipulation of specific devices. And there are some teams um, in the United States uh, specifically working on a neurotrompectomy on, on, on neuro application but also in uh, Asian markets that are doing very interesting work uh, on uh, endovascular robotics. Okay. But uh, I, I think those those will meet at some point. Uh, we'll, we'll see very interesting collaborations in the future, especially with imaging systems. Uh, we plan our development is basically. We see, as 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 mentioned before, this step the next step and the next step and our technology uh is we call it endovascular robot system Sometimes, uh to be fair none of existing endovascular technologies are truly robots they are uh some sort of uh very sophisticated manipulators at that point of time because you just uh replicate the movements of uh a person who controls that system so uh, in that sense, that's, that's not entirely robots. And if, uh, and, and the robot is used in a very broad sense here, the term, but if you would um, see what are the next steps, and for example, for some we um, we register this haptic force feedback data. And each moment of time, uh, we have a high resolution data of what forces are applied to what devices and what is happening inside that vascular system of uh, the patient. Uh, If you have imaging data and you have this haptic force feedback data, this creates a very nice data set, a digital footprint of entire procedure, what happened in each moment of time. And from there, you can work on uh, several different things. First of all, you can work on uh, how to plan ahead and how to slice that data. So you have a metrics for uh, procedure improvement, for uh, maybe device improvements, for uh, many things that that you can uh, basically have data from where you previously had nothing or, you know, that was a black box. What happens in, in, in OR stays in OR. On the other hand, we can use this data to uh, constantly improve our technology. We can use machine learning algorithms to feed this data, to train on this data and to do certain things automatically and gradually increase autonomy of sentante. And then it actually becomes a robot by definition, because it can do certain things uh, without interference of uh, of the physician. Naturally, first steps will be very basic, like, you know, uh, retraction of the devices in an automatic way, so the system knows uh, perfectly how what forces were used to go in, so it knows what's the safe level is to go out. But then, uh, on the other hand, you can, uh, the possibilities are limitless, you can, uh, you know, Help physicians train on and help younger physicians uh, during the procedure. For example, and if you collect a lot, a lot, a lot of data, uh, clinical data, then at some point of time you may be able to give suggestions to a physician that you know in such situation, majority of physicians would choose that or that uh, you know right. device or that or that way to manipulate, and this can be uh, additional help uh, physician to you know, do a procedure in the best way possible.
0: Okay, amazing. Is this all technology that you're looking to apply into the future of the Sentante platform as well?
1: Absolutely, yes, that's, yeah. that's the plan. I just described uh, how we look to the future, but I'm pretty sure that there will be some uh, very different collaborations uh, with, for example, imaging technologies uh, that you could, you know, use different imaging modalities, different imaging apps for uh, pre-procedure, pre-operational planning, intra-operational planning, uh, post-operational planning maybe. Uh, the, The whole cath lab in that sense is an ecosystem and many different things have to work together in order to make things work in the best way possible. So I believe a lot of this integration and creation of that digital cath lab uh will be taking part in the nearest future
0: cool and do you have any idea of the kind of time scales that that will actually be is it like five years in the future 10 years 15 20 years in the future the way we might start to see some of these like uh, well it is really ai is is how that will start to work and feed in because uh, there's a lot of talk about it in the market but actually seeing that being used on patients is still a little way off yet
1: Absolutely, Uh, clinical. Well, medicine is basically, in general, very uh, a field with huge inertia. So you, you, many technologies exist out there uh, in different fields, but until they come to clinical use, it takes time because you absolutely have to be certain about the safety and the efficiency in. Basically, safety and efficiency are the, the key terms here, but uh, it takes time. And uh, if you would look to timelines, uh, historical timelines, uh, how long did it take, for example, for uh, Da Vinci system to become white, the the, the key system, key robotic system in in the market? It it took quite some time. Starting from you know after the launch of the device, uh, it took quite a lot of time until it uh, became a standard of care in, in certain indications. So uh, it will take time. Uh, clinical validation of existing technologies take year to uh, regulatory pool takes time. So. Uh, in five years from now, I believe you would start seeing uh, new things uh, coming, especially knowing how many of those technologies uh, that are being developed now. And, and you know, there's, I don't know, maybe 200 of different robotic technologies out there that are currently under development. Uh, it's probably a a question that uh, it's better to ask you, Henry, what, what, Just... what do you think here? Because you talk to, to so many different robotic technologies, developers, and uh, not only in endovascular as we are here, but also soft tissue, some orthopedic, uh, ophthalmic, uh, and neuro. So I, I believe yeah. we have really good sense of what's coming and, and when.
0: Yeah, so timelines depend on who you ask. As you say, it's all about getting these into the clinic. Um, and what I would say is out of those 200 technologies, most of them are thinking about this artificial intelligence and I think it will start to be a phased approach where it, as you say it's the more simple things to start with is like in in the vascular you said the retraction like that's a more of an easy movement because the robots already tracks it all the way and it knows where it is to remove it but actually driving to a target site I think that's probably a phased and further away approach Um, It very much depends on the market as well. I mean, there are some levels of autonomy already coming to fruition, like in orthopedics. Um, There's certain parts, I'm going to use monogram orthopedics as an example, where they are automating the sawing of the bone after registration, which is quite an interesting piece of um, automated procedure. So it is starting to come to market, I don't really think anyone's cracked it yet, but yeah I, I think the more simple things are starting to be next 2-3 to three years and then further on from that more complex if I was to take a guess and a very uneducated guess but from other people is about 10 years I would say before we start to see full autonomous surgeries yeah I, I absolutely
1: agree it takes time and uh, even in 10 years if we talk about fully autonomous that will be a hell of a Workload for FDA as well, to uh, and and regulators to basically make sure that, you know, we're not harming.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I don't think it'll be every procedure is automated, but some more simple ones will start to be automated in 10 years time. Um, Some of these more complex procedures, like some of the more soft tissue complex procedures, I think that's still going to be way further out than that as well. But we might start to see. I think we will start to see specific parts of certain surgeries done autonomously to start with to kind of reduce the surgeon's yeah. cognitive workload and things like that but by the time it starts to get fully autonomous like no one seems to be talking about replacing the surgeon or removing the surgeon completely they're talking about empowering or augmenting the surgeon to actually get them to level up their skill set rather than necessarily replacing them so i don't think Think that's going to really come about for a few years yet. Yeah, if I'm talking speculatively, I do think it will eventually happen. Um, but right now, no one's really talking about that because I don't think these people want to scare pe- the surgeon off. Is hey, we're going to come and replace you eventually? No, I don't think anyone really wants to tell people that at the moment. But I think eventually it will. It will start to happen.
1: Yeah, but then uh, when you when the physicians have. Uh, technology that empowers them and allows to do more and more complex things, then uh, uh, it basically just shifts uh, everything towards. So we basically leave uh, very simple things to the technology to deal with and you focus on really complex stuff that uh, human intervention is needed anyway.
0: Exactly. So how are you finding the market at the moment? So there's Companies, lots of companies raising investment at this time. Um, some are struggling, some are starting to get some results. Um, so I'm starting to see a bit more positivity. But how are you finding the market at the moment?
1: It is definitely a biased market now, if you would uh, take a look at VCs and raising funds. So uh, VCs are in. Uh, better position to negotiate better deals with the best startups. There are so many startups raising funds and there are um, not that many of uh, investors that are looking to deploy a lot of Uh, many of them are conserving some funds for existing uh, portfolio companies to support uh, through next rounds. Uh, Some are uh, cautious uh, due to different market conditions and um, that pressure will remain uh, next year as well uh, because there are according to some numbers that I've seen recently like uh, 60% of uh, startups have money for like 12 to 18 months and they'll be raising next year. So that's a huge amount of uh, startups raising money. Uh, on the other hand, uh, financial markets and uh, funds are not popping up every now and then nowadays. Basically, the the good funds, the, the, the funds that have experience, they have money, they are continuing to invest, and it's, it's basically business as u- usual for them, maybe an even a uh, better phase for business because they have wider choice uh, for startups is uh, a bit tougher. But I believe it's uh, it's not closed uh, uh, markets. Everyone uh, working hard can't raise money. I uh, We are raising money. I know a bunch of companies from, for example, that mentioned MedTech Innovator uh, are raising money. And uh, and actually that MedTech Innovator cohort uh, or companies that went through that accelerator raised huge, uh, more than third of all VC money uh, that were raised for Met Tech were raised by the companies from MedTech Innovate Accelerator. So that's a, a huge, uh, I would say, shout out to the program that, you know, they they doing a really great selection. And, and uh, like 95% of uh, alumni are still in the business or being acquired and, you uh, um, Basically, building successful businesses to raise money. So that's 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 great. So I believe even in current market conditions, uh, good companies find money. It's not easy. Uh, it's definitely not easy. And uh, from recent headlines, you see even a quite advanced companies struggling to uh, finance their way uh, forward. So. Um, it's it's it is difficult, but it's always been difficult. Uh, maybe it's now a bit more difficult.
0: Yeah, brilliant stuff. And just to close off the podcast, then is there any advice you have for people who want to enter the industry, who want to start up their first surgical robotics company, or any advice you'd give to generally the listeners of the podcast? Uh, absolutely. So. Um...
1: If you are looking to enter the field, give a call to Henry. He's an expert here and uh, working hard and knows everyone. And, uh, but in general, this is a great field to be in. It's, uh, at least for me, it is very interesting space. And uh, you meet uh, brilliant minds, brilliant people uh, from different specialities. Yes, you have to learn things uh, on the way, but that's the fun part. Uh, Engineers have to learn about uh, clinical applications, about business requirements, about many different things, and and vice versa clinicians learn about the technical implementation of certain things. So it's a very exciting field. Uh, If you are uh, looking to enter it, do it. It's really interesting. And uh, in the end, you have a reward of uh, not only financial reward when you're working in the field, but also that you're doing something which will help patients, will help people, will help clinicians and will help to advance uh, the medical technology that would help uh, people in the future. So that has a meaning behind it as well.
0: Thank you very much for that. Thank you. See you soon.
1: Thank you so much, Henry. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you.